Hello? The anointing. Thank you. Well, it's great to be back with you. I had the privilege to be here not long ago with you celebrating your, uh, uh, was it 25th, right? Was that it? And uh, it has been a privilege to be involved, in, to, at least to some degree, uh, mostly on the fringes of what the Lord has done here and the privilege to participate in it to some degree. Very excited about what the Lord has done and what's happening now. I've had the opportunity to just hear so many things of God's blessing upon Christ's prayers here in Greenville. And uh, you're in a wonderful mission field throughout this city, and we pray for you, and we're extremely excited about what the Lord is doing. Dave, I want to thank you for the, but where are you? There you are. Dave, I want to thank you for your kind um, uh, invitation to be here. I don't take that lightly. I know as a pastor, the pulpit ministry of a pastor is very dear to him, and you kind of chart out your course and everything, so uh, to uh, extend uh, an invitation pretty much uh, just almost on the spur of the moment uh, when I discovered I would be here, and uh, we, uh, Dave asked if I could uh, be here, that just, in fact, I wrote him back to say, are you sure, because I know how pastors are on this, and that, uh, but he was very gracious to do that. I'm very excited about his ministry. Uh, here and what the Lord is doing, and um, and then also just great to be here. Uh, I noticed that he was very careful to say I attended East Carolina. I did not graduate. I uh, performed a minor miracle in the 1960s. I flunked out of East Carolina. That's because. Back then, I know it's not that way now. It's now the Athens of the East now. I'm well aware of that. But uh, back then, pretty much, if you could fog a mirror, you could graduate from East Carolina. And uh, so uh, I succeeded uh, in flunking out. I'll never forget the assistant baseball coach informed me, who was also the dean of students, uh, James Mallory, that I was no longer. I hadn't worked in for a couple of years this part about going to class. I hadn't worked that part in. And uh, so I was gone, but God sent me home. I met this young lady, and I became a Christian. And then God brought me back, and then in a tobacco field called me to ministry, uh, working in um, Mr. Glenn Hardy's tobacco fields and, um, uh, and uh, called me to ministry, and then uh, went on to Covenant College and finished there. Uh, the, uh, and then also just one other word, thank you. For, I've just enjoyed hospitality since I've been here. Yesterday was great hospitality. It was like a, um, I dabbled around the golf team at uh, East Carolina, and uh, so we got, it was like an old nostalgia moment when Press and Tom and Jim Fields took me to play golf yesterday at Brook Valley. That was just so much fun to do that. Uh, it was a trip back in time, and uh, it was a wonderful time. I mean, Press would step up and hit, and I was so inspired. I mean, it was awesome. And then Tom got up to hit, and I was reminded that we're in a fallen world. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then Jim would get up to hit his tee shot, and I was reminded there is hope in God's grace out there yet as well. So it was a great day uh, to be with everybody. Now I want you to turn in your copies of God's Word, or boot up your Bible, whichever you're going to do, and uh, go to Acts chapter 17 with me. And uh, I want to ask you to join me in prayer just for a moment. Father, we have come to your word. Would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart to be acceptable in your sight? And simply, I would ask that what your people know that is true, you would use this exposition of your word to affirm. What they yet need to know and want to know from your word, you would use this to begin to help and to continue to help them grow. 
where we are falling short of embracing that word in our life, would you both convict and challenge us out of your grace and for your glory, that we might love our Savior and keep his commandments. And then, Father, thank you for the very focus of what we will deal with this morning. Here's a city, here's a church that says and desires to biblically love you, love one another, love the lost, and love the city. So would you help us to know how we can send, bring, and live the gospel and who we are talking to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, <clears throat> churches that love the Lord and love people and love the city are going to be pretty serious about something. And that's what, they're going to be serious about a number of things, not the least of which is worship. And I just love our tradition, which I think is rooted in Scripture, of Christ, uh, tr Trinitarian, Christ-exalting, Spirit-filled, simple worship. If I could just say something here, this is an observation as a pastor. Whenever churches lose confidence in God's word, they always descend into complicated ritualism. But when you have confidence in God's word, the word of God, to know the God of the word, then you can embrace the simplicity of the Christian life and all of its profound implications. But you can embrace it, and that's seen in our worship. And I'm so grateful for a simple worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, so churches are serious about worship. That's the one thing in the Bible God says he seeks from us. The Father seeks true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But we're also serious about the Great Commission and, and the Great Commission to take the gospel and make disciples through evangelism and disciple making. That we take the gospel into the world. One of the gigantic mistakes that I think we're making today is... Um, is to think that we will win the city by what we do on Sunday morning. In other words, our number one evangelistic tool becomes the gathered worship service. There are many reasons I think that's a mistake. That does not mean that we do not bring people to worship knowing they're going to hear the gospel. That does not mean that the worship is not evangelistic. In fact, the book of Corinthians says that when God's people gather to worship and God is in the midst of them, the unbeliever will fall on his face and say, God is in the midst of these people. So it certainly has an impact. But the way you win the city is not when you gather, but when you scatter. What do you do when you scatter? That you take the gospel, you build bridges, you go into the world. If you'll just take the take a look at the uh, take a look at the um, uh, at the book of Acts, and you will see very clearly that Jerusalem. Uh, was being inundated with the work of the gospel. But it wasn't until persecution came and they got scattered that the gospel went to Judea and Samaria. And then when they sent Paul and Barnabas and others that the gospel, you, we have to scatter. So we gather on, this isn't the weekend. This is the week beginning. The first day of the week. I hear so many people say, well, this weekend I'm going to go to church. No, weekend was yesterday. This is week beginning. He rose on the first day of the week. So we gather up praise from what he has done in our lives last week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then we ask God to encourage and stimulate us from his word and with one another to step into this week. 
in order to claim it for Jesus Christ with our lives and our lips, that we'll go into this world with the gospel. Now, you're going to go to a, I've been in Greenville off and on and lived here and everything. I know there is a unbelievable, really and truly for Eastern Carolina, there is now an unbelievable tapestry in this city. You not only have the issues of, uh, of various ethnicities and black and white, you've got uh, poor and, and rich. Uh, you've got, um, my goodness, when I was here, some of my best friends, I actually worshiped at Trinity Free Will Baptist when I moved back here. And um, so some of my best friends, when I lived here, there were more Free Will Baptists than there were people. I mean, they were just everywhere. <laughs> And uh, so um, you've got, uh, you got churched, you've got quote-unquote unchurched, you've got um, uh, the academic community, you've got the rural community, you've got the agrarian community, you've got the industrial community, you've got all kinds of things out there, and it's right that you look at those segments of society. Now, when we take the gospel here in Campus Crusade and RUF, go to, the, go to the college, and when we take the gospel, we have a ministry that my son's involved in called Young Business Leaders. I'd love to see that here. Young Business Leaders. When we go into the business community, we have another ministry called Christian Medical Ministry. When we go to the, to the healthcare providers and minister to them, there are some unique dynamics that are there. But what I want to suggest to you today, that God's word informs us that there are some things that you can know, and I don't care if the person is young or old, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, bond or free, uh, agrarian or urban, I don't care what they are, there are things that you can know about them when you go to them. That does not mean you don't want to take the things to take the time to find out the peculiar things about them, that we treat people with dignity to respect to understand the context of their life. But when you come to them, there are certain things you can know automatically. I don't care who they are. I do not care who they are. There are certain things that you can know automatically. And I want to share with you from God's Word seven things that you can know that are universally true about every person you go meet in this city to love people with the gospel for evangelism and discipleship. I want to give you from this text. Now, you can get it from a lot of other texts, but thankfully, in God's providence, Paul preached a sermon. And when he preached that sermon, there is a distillation of seven things that he assumed about the people he was preaching to. And I want to share with you those seven things that come out of this amazing sermon. Now, here's the good news. I did a series of uh, 15 messages on this. I'm not going to give you all 15. The bad news is you need to pray that I don't try to do all 15 sermons in this. I'm actually going to try to do one piece of one of them, which is seven observations that you can know that are infallible infallible, from God's infallible word about people. And it's not only in this sermon, it's in other texts, but thankfully it is here distilled for us to take a hold of it. But when I say that, again, I want to say this with emphasis, that does not mean that when you go and you'd meet somebody, well, I know these seven things about you from the Bible and I don't need to know anything else. No, you need to know a lot more because people live in the narrative of their life and the influence of nurture and nature and everything around them so you need to take the time but this is the starting point that you can begin with every single person 
Is it youth ministry, student ministry, children's ministry, senior adults, whatever. When I take the gospel and minister the gospel to the segments of society, these are seven things that I can know. Look with me in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to read this sermon that the Apostle Paul preaches, and then I'm just going to give these to you very uh, uh, a rudimentary presentation of them, but that you can jot them down, and I know your pastoral staff can take this to a whole other level than I possibly could. So let me go ask you to look with me in verse 16. Oh, one other thing before I go any further. <clears throat> this passage, this same chapter, contains my favorite 13 words in the Bible, <laughs> which are a frustrated adversary of the kingdom of God saying, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that. I mean, I'm not, I don't love it that he's frustrated. I, I hope he got converted and I just, it's not recorded, but I hope he got converted. But he got, they got so frustrated. These people, now I want you to stop and think about this. This is written, this happens less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus. And less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, all the way in Europe, they're saying, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now in the context of that, the world shaker, Apostle Paul and his team have gone about planting churches. They went across into Europe, they're at uh, Philippi, they're at Berea, they're at Thessalonia. And every time when Paul had this success of planting the church, he knew that churches would not go beyond their leadership. So if he didn't have time to develop leaders there for them, his habit was to leave some of his team behind. And that's where we are right now. Some of his team have been left behind at places like Berea and Thessalonia, and Paul is waiting for them to catch up with him so they can resume their ministry in Athens and Corinth. So while he's waiting for them, this is what happens. Here's what he says, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So don't, don't, let's don't walk by that too quickly. Here's what he does. He's waiting on them and he says, you know, this isn't a vacation, this is a staycation. I'm here to do something. And uh, so while I'm waiting on them, I'll do something. Well, the first thing you see, when he sees idolatry, he doesn't just walk by it. It provokes something within it because this is blasphemy. It is blasphemy against the God of glory and grace. So he is provoked. Notice, he is not provoked to attack the idolaters. He is provoked by the idolatry. Now he wants to rescue the idolaters. So what does he do? Well, he goes, just what he said, tells us to do, go to the Jew first. So he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with them. Then he goes to the marketplace. <laughs> Where am I gonna find the Jews? Synagogue. Where am I gonna find the Gentiles? They're shopping. I'll go to the marketplace. That's where I'll find them. And so he goes out to the marketplace and he then goes to them. Notice, he doesn't set up a meeting and they expect them to come in. 
he goes out to seek and to save the lost. He goes out to meet them as I think it was your pastor said, just as, he, just as God did with us. He went and met us where we were. He didn't tell us, here's a note, uh, you know, buck up, do better, and get to some true religion. No, he went to us. He went after us. We who have been claimed by him, what do we do? We intentionally go after the idolater. We intentionally go to them. And so he goes to the synagogue, I'll find the Jews there. He goes to the marketplace, I'll find, the, I'll find them there. And so what does he do? He ministers. Now what, he starts, and people begin to hear him. Some of the culture shapers, the culture shapers of the day hear him. Now who are the culture shapers in Greece? Philosophers and orators. So they hear him. Here's a guy that's not a philosopher, he's a preacher. Here's a guy that's not an orator, he's a preacher but he captures their attention and they want to know more about him. So what happens then? Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now there was nothing more to a, to a Greek philosopher on which side of the spectrum, there was nothing more stupid than the resurrection. The whole purpose of life is to escape the physical and the material. Why in the world would you want a, re a religion that says that body once it got buried gets resurrected? They just thought that was utter idiocy. But he is preaching Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. So they want to know more about it, and they're coming to him to ask him about it. So what happens? They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things be, uh, to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, can I tell you, that was one of the greatest thrills of my life, was the, I've been there four times now, to stand on that barren rock at the very same place and think of what Paul did there. I just, I would sit there and read this and read this there at the Areopagus in Mars Hill. But here's what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you, that is the men of Athens, are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, here's what, he's walked down, I've actually stood there and looked down the same road that he was talking about, that he had walked up, and on both sides are idols after idols after idols after idols. They provoked him. And then right in the middle on that road, they got this one unknown God, because you see, you can't make enough gods to explain life. So they got to have one to, you know, a safety net God to fill in the blanks, the unknown God. They're, these gods, they don't do it. So we'll have an unknown God that will fill in the blanks to make this thing work. And so that unknown God, that they, he takes that and he builds a bridge from that. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Four. And then he takes some of their own philosophers. He said, now why would he do that? Well, folks, listen. All truth is God's truth. Everything in the Bible is true, but not all truth is in the Bible. And so periodically, God in his common grace will let philosophers come up with something that's accurate. And he says, here's a couple of things they've come up with that are accurate, sustained in God's word. So he uses it to help build the bridge with them. It's like that clock there. If that clock is broken, I'm not going to trust it, but it's still going to be right two times every day. Well, that's the way philosophers are. I'm not going to trust them because it's nothing more than profane theology. But they still can get something right every once in a while. So I can use it. And that's what he does. So he quotes them. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed by raising um, uh, that he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but the others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now just a couple of thoughts from this, but if you don't mind, uh, let me just mention one thing that sent me off into 15 sermons. I was amazed at Paul's defense and offensive movement of the gospel to these pagans. He starts with the doctrine of creation. Now, when he goes to a synagogue, he doesn't start with the doctrine of creation or the doctrine of sin. He starts with what? Jesus. Because in the synagogue, they already know creation and sin. What they don't know is the fulfillment that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. So that's where he starts. But when he goes out to the Gentiles in the marketplace, where does he start? He said, let's start with who you are and how you got here. So he starts, so anybody that tells you the doctrine of creation is not important to get it right is dead wrong for evangelism and discipleship. And notice he affirms the historic Adam. He, is, he, he affirms the historic Adam. And what is astounding? Your pastor, me, most every pastor that believes in the sovereignty of God, almost all of us are told, you know, you can believe in the sovereignty of God and things like predestination and election, but that's kind of about 10 years into someone's Christian life. You can spring that on them. Paul springs it in evangelism. He has predestined your existence. He has predestined the boundaries. He has, notice how many times he speaks of the sovereignty of God in evangelism. Now, I'm not saying 
your evangelistic effort is to hand someone the five points of Calvinism. I'm not saying that. But notice, what is he doing? He is in evangelism affirming first the doctrine of God, who he is, then what he does, and in that sermon he covers God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And then he brings them to the judgment. That he has appointed a time in which there is judgment. The doctrines, the patient explanation of the biblical doctrine of heaven, and the clear explanation of the doctrine of hell and the judgment seat has disappeared from our pulpits like the dew in a summer morning. It's just disappeared. Not Paul. He would tell them of the wrath to come. Because that's how you got saved. You know how you got saved? You got saved because of God's wrath that fell on the cross. That's why I never use the phrase, hell on earth. I never use it because I think it's only been true one time. And that was 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Where Jesus drank the unspeakable cup of God's wrath. And Jesus, on that day, defeated all of our enemies. He's not yet destroyed them all. He'll destroy them when he returns. But he defeated them right there. And so he understands the setting of evangelism. Jesus didn't go to that cross to be your life coach. He didn't come for your self-esteem. I'm not saying coming to Jesus doesn't affect the way you live. He came to save you and me from our sins and the wrath to come, that we might be right with him and intimate, personally, knowing him with all of our life. That's why Paul takes the time to speak of the doctrine of God, doctrine of creator, redeemer, sustainer, the judgment, and then he brings them to the God's answer, the cross, and then he speaks of God's affirmation of victory in the resurrection, even though they hated any notion of a physical, of a physical resurrection. He spoke the truth. They wanted him to be an orator. He said, no, I'm a preacher. They wanted him to be a, they wanted him to be a philosopher. He says, no, I think if I hear one more time Bill O'Reilly on Fox News say Christianity is a philosophy. I'm going to go through the tube and after him. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a declaration of God. It is not seeking truth. It is a declaration of truth that you either believe is true or you say no it's not true. It is not, a, it is not man's search for truth. It is God's revelation. We're people of the book. That's how we know our God. He is revealed in cre creation, but he is revealed savingly, life-changingly in his word. So with that in mind, as he brings all these things, what do we find out about the people he's talking to? Here's what he assumes. Seven things, very quickly. Here they are. Number one, everyone you go talk to in Greenville and beyond is a believer. They're all believers. That's why I never use the phrase, <laughs> are you a believer? Because I know everybody I meet is a believer. There's something or someone they are believing in. It's probably changed numerous times because they all fail. But everybody you meet is a believer. In fact, James tells you what? The devils believe. The question isn't are they believers? The question is in who and what? 
Everyone is a believer. We live in a broken world. Therefore, what we put our hope somewhere. Everybody does. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's academic credentials. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's applause. I don't know what it is, but everybody you meet is believe. There, there's no one out there saying, you know, I'm just not a believer in anything. No, every, you need, they may say that, but you know this, they believe. They believe something. Secondly, secondly, everyone you meet is a believer. Secondly, everyone you meet is religious. They're all religious. There's nothing more religious than an atheist. They're all religious. From what they believed, they have embraced a, a set of doctrines for life and a set of rituals for life. They are religious. Now, they can change what they believe in their rituals on a dime. But they have a faith commitment. And secondly, they are religious. Idolatry demands religion. People either are bowing, they're always bowing with allegiance, affection, and adoration to what they have believed. And it is controlling their life. It is, it is directing their life. It has given them a worldview whereby they religiously interpret life. Number three. Not only is everybody you meet a believer, secondly, everyone you meet is religious, thirdly, everyone you meet worships. They worship. That's never a question. Everybody worships. The question is not do they worship, but as Jesus said, do they give true worship? Everybody is engaged in worship. It's either true worship done in spirit and in truth by the hand of God's grace in a triune God directed to God or it is something else that they've given their adoration, allegiance, and affection to. My biggest concern in the evangelical church in the recapturing of worship is not that we don't worship but that we easily worship worship instead of the Lord. But everybody you meet, everybody you meet is worshiping. They have bowed with adoration, allegiance, and affection at some altar. And they're convinced what I believe, my religion, and what I worship will give me strength, will give me security, and will give me significance. They're absolutely convinced of it. Let me give you the fourth thing. It ain't working. They're empty. All the false gods of this world, you just have to keep making another one until finally you say, well, the unknown God, I'm just missing something. It's not working. When I come to Greenville, it's one of the most bittersweet moments of my life because so much of my called to serving Christ, so much of what God did in my life is here, and also the apex of my blasphemy, violence, immorality, ungodliness was right in this city. But I want to tell you something. 
it was empty. It always is. That's why celebrities uphold the entire industry of therapists. Whether they're athletic celebrities, or whether they're media celebrities, entertainment celebrities, they're the, we have the gods of our age, and the celebrities actually own all of them. And they end up suicide uh, with so many attempts at plastic surgery that they become almost hideous in appearance because they are not satisfied. There's not enough money. There's not enough admiration. There's not enough applause. There's not enough power. There's not enough control. It ain't working. I'm really going to date myself. Your pastor did his best when he kept talking about decades ago and decades ago, and I really, I really appreciate that, but I'm really going to date myself for some of you here. Some of you are going to have to go take a look at Wikipedia on this one. But there was a singer in the late 60s by the name of Peggy Lee, and she sang a song that didn't hit the charts here at East Carolina with the Tams and the Embers and, uh, and the Showmen. She didn't get that high, but everybody knew about her song. And it was so emotive, and I think so real, when she sang, Is That All There Is? It was like the book of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> all is vanity. It ain't working. You can't have enough sex. You can't get perverted enough. You can't get immoral enough. You can't have enough money. You can't have enough power. And that, when I say that, that should not cause any of us delight. It should move our hearts to bring to them the one who is life. He doesn't just come to Jesus to give you a life. Jesus has come to you, and he is your life. For to me, to live is Christ. Not Christ is there for me to live. For me to live is Christ. Or as Paul, as Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. This Christ by the power of the Son of God, who loves me and has loosed me from my sins. It is that Christ alone that gives life. All of the, I, know, I know many people intimidate us with their power, their money, their achievements, or their whatever. And I'm not telling you this in order for you to feel good about yourself. I'm asking you to believe this because they need to hear from you. It's not working. If you peel back the curtains of their life, it won't take long. You can find out it's not working. And they're empty. And all seemingly has evolved away. It has disappeared. Now, what does that bring us to? Well, number five, let me give you the fifth one. The fifth one is this. It's um, 
So, number one, they're believers. Number two, they're religious. Number three, they're worshipers. Number four, uh, it's not working. Number five, what's the problem? They're sinners. They are sinners. They are born with a sin record and a sin heart, just like you were, just like I was. We were born with a sin record and a sin nature. We had a record, we had a legal problem, we had the sin of Adam. We had a, a, um, a personal a heart problem. We were born with a sinful heart. The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. People don't sin and become sinners. We are born sinners. That's why we sin. So they've got a bad heart. They've got a bad record. They've got a bad life. It ain't working. And they've got a terrible, unspeakable, irrevocable future in a place called hell that God rescued you from. So that brings me to number six. You have the solution they need that's been entrusted to you. It's called the gospel. You have the one singular, the one and only solution. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through him. You have the one solution, the Savior, who gives you a new record. Boy, didn't you love singing that a while ago? His blood has cleansed us. His righteousness has clothed us. His blood has shut the gates of hell. His righteousness has opened up the gates of heaven. I am, I am made right. I'm, I'm not just forgiven. I'm now innocent. I'm not just, I, praise the Lord, I am forgiven. I got a lot to be forgiven of. Praise the Lord. But more than that, justification isn't, come on in, you're forgiven. You are innocent because you have the righteousness of Christ that clothes you to take you to heaven. You are not only forgiven, you are now accepted in the beloved one. Well, you not only got a new record, you got a new heart. You've been born again. You still got sin living in you, but you don't live under the dominion of sin. He has broken the power of sin. We will sin, but we don't have to sin. Sin's reign has been broken. You've been born again. So you got a new record. You got a new heart. You got a new life. This journey of grace, uneven, imperfect, but this wonderful journey of grace where, I love the vows of our church. Hear them every time. In humble reliance upon divine grace, I will endeavor. <laughs> the new life in Christ, 100% dependent upon God and his grace and power, and 100% engaged by the discipline of grace in our life. And you got a new home. That's probably one of the most precious moments in a pastor's life. Other than praying with people who are coming to Christ, watching their victories in their life for Christ and Christ in them, when you get to the graveside, where everybody thinks these people just left the land of the living and went to the land of the dying, and you get to tell them, no, no, wrong, bzz, wrong, gong, that's wrong. 
They just left the land of the dying and went to the land of the living. They're home. You're not. You're just on a, you're on a green card. You're an alien. You're a sojourner living for Christ in this world headed home. They're home. You're not. And I get to, as a pastor to know one more home. Praise the Lord. Praise his holy name. You got a new heart, you got a new record, you got a new life, you got a new home, and everyone that you're talking to is a believer in what kills them, is religiously following it, is worshiping at its altar, and it's not working, and they have no power to save themselves. They are helpless and they are hopeless. But you have the glorious message, the power of the gospel that gives a new heart, a new home, a new record, a new life in Jesus Christ. And that brings me, uh, that brings me to uh, the last one, or that brings me to the one that I, um, uh, the seventh one, and that's this. You love them, you share it with them, you do all that you do, but you're always gonna get a mixed response. Did you notice how it ended? Some laughed at him, mocked him. Some said, you know, this is a little interesting. Could you come back and talk to me later? And then some said, I believe. Dionysius, Damaris, I believe. I believe. You're always going to have a mixed response. You see, because unless... God intervenes, this good news is hated. Nobody wants to be told, you're a sinner, you need a savior, and you can't save yourself, and your religion can't save you. Nobody wants to know that. Therefore, the gospel is a scandal. I mean, you would think it'd be glorious, because every religion in this world has one thing in common. They tell people what they got to do or give to get to heaven. Except Christianity. It says what you do and give won't can't you? what you do and give is not the answer, it's, it's part of the problem. But there is a God who loves you, who gave his only son, who gave his life, who gave his Holy Spirit to change your mind and heart, that you would leave the idols and come to the one true and living Savior. But unless God intervenes, that message is a scandal. But as God starts to intervene, some will become curious. Can I talk to you again about that? I love those moments. I just absolutely love those moments. I love to talk about the gospel with people and then say, is there any reason why you shouldn't receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I love to ask that question. There's a couple of things I love, and I'll close with this, but there's a couple of things I love. I love to, um, I had uh, some of your folks with me on the Reformation tour, and, and uh, they didn't know this, but I, I kind of pray for turbulence. Uh, when I'm in a plane. Now, not when my wife's next to me, because that means, I, it, that kind of rules out the purpose of the turbulence. I pray for some turbulence so I can do some evangelism. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you get some turbulence. Now, I don't want a whole lot. I'm not, I'm not asking for a thousand foot drop or something like that, but, you know, enough to shake the bends a little bit, open one up, something fall out. And then I just turn to the guy next to me and I say, do you think there's a heaven? <laughs> Did you know I have never had anybody tell me no? Never. 
into the conversation. They'll later tell me they're an atheist. But when I first asked it, you know why nobody will ever tell you no? A lot of people criticize evangelism explosion because it, it starts off with, uh, what would you, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And uh, if you were to stand before God and God would say, everybody says, well, that's for a cultured Christian culture. That you, no, no, I don't believe that. Because the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in the heart of a man. Now I get to ask the next question. How do you think you get there? Now I find out what they believe, what their religion is, and who they're worshiping. And then I'll ask, and then I'll usually use my testimony. Now remember this, your testimony is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Your testimony is a bridge to share the gospel. And I know people say, and I understand why they say this, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Okay, I am not, I may get to see the back of the head of St. Francis Assisi when I get to heaven. So I'm not, but while I applaud his intent in that statement, that is terrible theology for evangelism. Nobody gets to heaven by admiring your Christian life. Now, our Christian life can open the door or close the door for sharing the gospel. But nobody gets to heaven because you're, they say, boy, what a great guy that guy is. I mean, nobody gets to heaven. They get to heaven by faith in Christ. And faith comes from hearing. You've got, here's what I would say. Use words. Preach the gospel. Use words. They're necessary. People have to hear. And so when you're sharing that gospel, and I get the opportunity to do there's all kinds of varieties of opportunities to do that. Build those bridges and see it happen. I, was, uh, I had the privilege to begin my ministry as an intern in a little Reformed Baptist church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in Lookout Valley. And uh, there's this dear saint named Ruth. She loved the Lord, and everybody knew she loved the Lord, and she told everybody she loved the Lord. But her son would not, she had two sons, and neither one had come to Christ. The oldest one, one of them had gone off into drugs and went after him and ministered to him. The other one had just gone off into, I mean, he was an athlete. He was an all-American basketball player in high school. Played uh, college basketball. He and and uh, you know had this big Harley uh, motorcycle. And I mean, he's just a man's man. And he had no time for Christianity. He thought it was just a bunch of whatever. And yeah, it's okay for my mama. But uh, and he actually hated Christians. So one day, my first year there, I had the opportunity to preach the gospel at a. And we had worship service Mother's Day, and she talked him and she and what she had gone talked to him about the faith and he had come to the church i'll never forget we're meeting in a living room my pulpit is a old television now do y'all know what an old television looks like in the 1970s it had these tubes sticking out of the back of it so all of my i had all my clothes uh came from um i had uh, two uh two special tailors polly and esther and, uh, and so those tubes would pick them, and I'd lose pants just every time I'd preach. They'd get all picked and everything. And they had that, t I remember the tablecloth over there, and I'd put my Bible there, and that was my pulpit, and I would preach. And, and he came in that day, everybody heard him. He came in five minutes late. That, the whole house shook with that Harley. He walked in, grabbed a chair, a dining room chair, put it in front, sat on it backwards, put his hands on it, and just started staring at me. Oh, man, that was a great moment. I just, I can't, I'm still remember that moment to this day and I even while I was preaching I was praying God would you use this for your people and would you somehow reach him well he came out he would, he just looked at me and shook my hand walked out and I could tell and, and we went up to the house and we're sitting down for dinner and I hear this 
pulling up in the front, this screech and pulling up in the front, and a Harley comes sliding in, and I hear the kickstand goes down, and I hear this beat on the door. Boom, boom, boom. I go to the door, and I get there, and it's Randy. I, told, I said, Cindy, uh, this may be my funeral, but uh, I love you, and kiss the kids. And uh, so I went to the door, and he comes to me, and he, I mean, his face is red, and he's looking at me, and I just knew he was going to hit me. And uh, he said, I was listening to that stuff today. I, I need it. Can I be a Christian? I said, absolutely. And we sat down and prayed. God gave him a wonderful wife, great family, became a stalwart for Christ. It's amazing. What he had, he believed in it, wasn't working. But Jesus, his work is glorious because he makes us his workmanship for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. I thank you so much for this congregation and what you're doing in their lives and through their lives. Father, as we go to the people in this city, help us to, with respect, understand the peculiarities and the uniqueness of the people, but also help us know what your word has already told us about them. They're already believing in something that has directed the religion of their life. And they are worshiping it. And it's not working. And they can't change it because they're sinners. And they got a record problem and a heart problem. But Father, we have the solution, Jesus, who will give them a new record, a new heart, a new life, a new family like this one, and a new home where we will praise you serve you, and learn of you forever. A new heavens and a new earth. Now, Father, help us not be discouraged at the mixed responses, because without divine intervention, no one will come. But give us great joy 